Well, Thanksgiving is on its way, and the Sunday after that, Advent begins. And I can think of no better way to begin those two celebrations this morning than by reflecting on the biblical concept of the Messiah, which we did mention briefly last week. Uh, You've no doubt heard the word before. You've sung the word before. You've perhaps even said, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But what does that mean? You know, as a word, it's not terribly accessible or understandable for English speakers, right? Um, I know what a, 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 a dog catcher does, right? He catches dogs. I know what a lawyer does, kind of. They do stuff with the law. But what is a Messiah? It's not even an English word. It's actually a Hebrew word, Meshiach, that's been just kind of ported into or transliterated into English. So what is it and where does the idea come from? Well, the books of First and Second Samuel, which we've studied over the last four years, these two volumes about David's life begin and end talking about the Messiah. And really, the Jewish expectation of a Messiah to come finds its explicit beginnings in First and Second Samuel. The first person to use the word Meshiach or Messiah in First Samuel is Hannah. This barren woman who desperately wanted a child, and she called out to God in her distress. And what did God do? He heard her prayer. He gave her a child. And when the child was born, she sings this song of thanksgiving that Jonathan just read for us from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let's look at it again. I'm going to read the whole thing because it's great, and I can't help myself. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. You notice it's in all small caps there. So that's the word Yahweh in the Hebrew. There is none, uh, my heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like Yahweh, for there's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked he shall shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That final word, anointed, is the Hebrew word, Meshiach, or Messiah. And at first glance, it seems like, okay, Hannah's just praying for the king of Israel, right? Look at it again. Verse 10. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one. He'll exalt the horn of the king. To a 21st century reader, this might just seem like a throwaway statement at the end of her song about Israel's king when she says God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She's praying for the king, right? But there's three historical problems with that. First of all, the law of God doesn't tell Israel to anoint 
their kings. This is the first time a kingly figure is ever referred to as anointed. The only people anointed or commanded to be anointed in the law are prophets and priests. So that's historical problem number one. It's weird she's applying the word meshiach or anointed to a kingly figure. Here's historical problem number two. Israel ain't got no king. They have no human king at this time. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 33 says this, Yahweh came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of his holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. So it's talking about the giving of the law at Sinai. Thus, Yahweh became king in Jeshurun, which is another word for Israel, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel, together. So when Hannah praised this, Israel didn't anoint kings. In fact, they didn't have an earthly king. Yahweh was Israel's king. So Hannah's use of the word is confusing. And here's the third historical problem with her use of the word Meshiach or anointed one. Her song of thanksgiving and praise don't paint a picture of the present. They they, they paint a picture of this idyllic future, one that we still have not seen. Look at verses 4, 5, 9, and 10. Verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So Hannah's singing not just about her having a baby. She's singing about the judgment of the world. She's talking about the end of all war, the onset of peace, the elimination of poverty and hunger. What is Hannah saying? She's saying, if God can do this, if he can give me a child in my barrenness, then perhaps all the brokenness that I see in the world can be fixed by his strong hand. And in the middle of this very future-aimed hope, she makes this mysterious prophetic statement about a royal, kingly, anointed one. It's very strange. So what does Messiah mean? Hannah's experience of answered prayer stirred up her hopes for a future Messiah king, an anointed king, who would fulfill even greater longings. So Hannah, through the power of the Holy Spirit, sees down through the ages. He gives her a glimpse of not simply a king who's going to make all things right, but of an anointed king, dare we say a prophetic and priestly king, a new Melchizedek, a new Moses, a new Joshua, who will deliver to Israel the greatest longings of their hearts. This chapter, 1 Samuel 2, is classic Yahweh. It has the fingerprints of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all over it. Let us simply pause and enjoy the character of the God we serve. Consider it. The first prophecy to mention the title Messiah, who does it come from? A woman. It seems fitting that the Messiah 
is first foretold by a woman because who were the first witnesses to his resurrection? But women. Let us continue to revel in how our God works. You see, Hannah wasn't just any woman. She was unable to have a child. And yet God miraculously gave her a child. Does not this text echo in all of Scripture and does not all of Scripture echo in this text? Hannah's story sounds like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. Of course, it sounds like Elizabeth and Mary. How faithful and consistent our God is in the way that he works. And let us not miss in these narratives, all these narratives, the promise of Genesis 3.15. When God said he would crush the head of the serpent, through whom? The seed of a woman. I can't read 1 Samuel 2 without seeing God at work for centuries upon centuries, saving his people, which is prophesied and brought to bear through women of faith. But I digress. A more narrow point is this. Hannah called out to God in her distress, and he answered her. And that answered prayer when he gave her a child made her stop and say, if Yahweh is like this, if he hears and answers a barren woman, if he can bring fruitfulness where there is none, what else will this God do? And she sings out this powerful song about one day when the world will be made right by an anointed one, by an exalted human who appears to be not only a prophetic and priestly king, but to have the power of God to do what humans cannot and have not done. And so as the story of First and Samuel have progressed, if we had never read it before and didn't know the Bible, what we should be asking ourselves as we hear the story unfold is, who is this Messiah? Is it Saul? Is it Saul, the first king who's anointed in Israel? Definitely not him. He was awful. And then David comes along. Perhaps he's the one. David is the king who's going to be exalted and is going to make all things right. Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know he wasn't the guy either. In fact, let's look at David's final words, kind of his parting words as king as he hands the crown to his son Solomon in chapter 23. Let's read verses 2 through 4. Well, let's read verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed, the Meshiach of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So this word anointed one or Messiah gets applied to David right here. And for the record, it's applied to him throughout First and Second Samuel. It's also applied to Saul, the first king of Israel. But the fact is both kings let Israel down. They don't fulfill Hannah's hopes. They don't make all things right. In fact, in many circumstances, they make things worse. Why? Because like all Israel, they're sinners too. They're fallen, and their capacity for justice and restoration are inevitably broken. They can't fix themselves, let alone fix Israel or the whole world. And David, of all people, knows that. We've seen his sin in technicolor over the last 11 chapters. So you can read... As David begins his last words, an almost bittersweet wisdom in David's final words here. Look at verses 2 through 4. The Spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. 
like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So David can look back on his kingship as well as Saul's, and he can see the varying effect they've had on their nation and on their households as leaders. When they failed as leaders, when they didn't fear God, when they didn't follow the Lord, they were not good for their families. They were not good for the nation. But when they followed the Lord, when they feared him, they were a blessing. They were like the dawn on a cold winter's morning. They were like a a rain that brings about fruit and good things. The one who rules justly is like the light of God. What he's saying is godly leaders are a blessing to their people, leading to fruitfulness in life. And this is just as true in civil society as it is in the home and the church. So this is kind of a broadly applicable leadership principle from David, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 5, he, he, and he, he goes beyond this proverbial statement about kingship and leadership, and he says something much more long-term, something that sounds a lot like Hannah's songs. So look at verse 5. For does not my house... Stand so with God. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? So David, after making this proverbial statement about godly leadership, makes this bold declaration that his house, that his dynasty, that his legacy and lineage, his household will be judged so by God. That God will look at his household and say, yes, This is true of them. They were godly leaders who were like the morning sun who brought about refreshing and fruit. Hmm. Pretty bold. Especially if you know how David's family plays out. They turn out to be sinners just like him. Some of them even worse than him. But what is the grounds, the reason that he gives for saying, yes, one day my household is going to be judged by God to be this kind of household? What is the grounds? Look again at verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? Why? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. God had made a promise to David. God's covenant promises to David revealed that Hannah's messianic hopes would come to bear through David's lineage. So when we get to the end of the two books... At this point, we should know, well, it ain't Saul and it ain't David, but this promise, this hope for an anointed one who make all things right, it's going to come through David's family. And how do we know that? It's from the promise Jonathan read for us in chapter 7. So go back to 2 Samuel 7. That's where we get to do a retrospective of four years of sermons all in one. Chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 8 through 17. Now, therefore... Thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house or a dynasty, a a, a lineage. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, a temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, how long? Forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. What did God promise? Well, he promised that one of David's sons would build a temple. He promised that God would be faithful to discipline his son Solomon and the ones that came after him. God promised his steadfast love, his chesed that we talked about a few weeks ago, to David's sons. But in the middle of all this, he also promises David an eternal kingship a royal line that will never be ended. He promises unending peace to the people of Israel. Now, you can see how some of these promises were fulfilled during Solomon's reign and the reigns of other sons of David, but that last promise about an everlasting kingdom, the promise of rest from all of Israel's enemies, that didn't happen with David, that didn't happen with Solomon, and it still hasn't happened. These are promises that still haven't been fulfilled. And so David's life ends... With these final words in 2 Samuel 23, with David still expecting something to happen. Like Hannah, he goes to his grave with promises that God has made that are not yet fulfilled. They haven't come true yet. Now, I hate to spoil the story, but clearly we Christians read all these texts as precursors to and prophecies about Jesus. The great king in David's lineage who would establish God's kingdom on earth forever. So let's start landing this plane. What does Messiah mean? The Messiah is a prophetic and priestly king in the line of David who had established God's kingdom through Israel, thereby offering salvation to all nations and restoring the earth to its Edenic roots. That's a really long answer. If I want to give you a short one, it would be this. The Messiah is the God-man who's making right everything we've broken. The Messiah fulfills so many hopes and so many promises. Promises made to Adam and Eve in the garden. Promises made to Abraham. Promises made to Moses and Israel. Promises made to Joshua and through the judges. Promises made to Hannah and David. The Messiah is not an Israel-only promise. This is a promise to the whole world through Israel and specifically through David. This is how we should define Messiah. And here's the fascinating thing and where this text meets you and me. This is intended for you to answer. Has the Messiah come? Yes, he has come in the virgin birth of Jesus. Has his kingdom been established? Yes, through the descent of his spirit and the spread of the gospel. But is the work of the kingdom fully complete? No. Has he offered salvation to all nations through Israel? Yes. Through his life, death, and resurrection. But have people from every tongue, tribe, and nation yet believed in Jesus as their, their Lord? No, not yet. We're going to keep going. So, you know, the Baptists that are in the room, the non-denominational assembly of God, you know, y'all, y'all can call it out. It's all right. Has the Messiah begun restoring the world to its Edenic state yet? Yes. Through his indwelling spirit, he has taken up residence in his people. And as we live in the earth as his temple, God's presence is spreading around the world with the church. But has he filled every corner of the earth yet? No, he has not. 
It is not yet Eden. It is not God's dwelling place on earth. He has not filled the world with his glory. He's not filled the world with justice. He has not done this yet. Here's where this meets us. The messianic expectations of the Old Testament long for a day that we still long for. And they invite us to the same kinds of hope. So all these messianic promises were fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but we still await his return. We wait for the consummation when all these things will be brought to completion. When Jesus comes back, all of these promises are going to be consummated and done. So we as Christians, we know who the Messiah is. We know how he fulfilled all these hopes. We know what he will do, but we, like Hannah and David, still wait, and we still The whole Bible inclines our hearts not toward the past, nor toward the present, but toward the future return of Christ. We should be an expectant people. Hannah and David were expectant people. Even at the end of his life, as David is dying, he's still looking forward. So how should the expectation of Hannah and David inform our own expectations today? Well, the better king and kingdom promised us should make the promises of the earth's kings and kingdoms taste bland and sound false. The messianic promise is a political promise before it's ever a spiritual promise. The statement that Jesus is Lord and that he brought a kingdom to this earth, these are political statements. In fact, our spiritual problem, sin, is a political problem. Humanity has rejected Yahweh as their king. We did it in the garden. Israel did it when they chose Saul as their king. And we do it every time we sin. We say, you know what, God? I'm in charge of me, not you. Rejection of kingship is a political idea. And the promise of the Messiah is this. Jesus is a good, faithful king who will never fail us. And he is the only hope for the world. That king and his kingdom should make whatever brand of politics you prefer taste pretty bland. You know why politicians can't keep their promises? It's not just because they lie. It's also because they're not God. They make promises that they can't keep. They're creatures. There is only one hope for your future. There is only one hope that any broken thing in this world can be fixed, and it is King Jesus. So as we thank God this Thanksgiving, as we look forward to Advent, let us remember our real hope. It's not the kingdoms of this earth which are passing away and can't fix the world. Our hopes are in the king who is already seated on the throne and whose kingdom is coming to bear in And through us. So let your hopes be stirred up toward that future. We should be an expectant people looking forward to Messiah's return. But here's another way we should be expectant. The better king and kingdom promised us should make us lament the current state of the world while never losing our hope for the future. Hannah lamented. She saw the the hunger, the barrenness, the pain around her. David lamented often. They didn't see their world through rose-colored glasses. No, they saw what was wrong with their world, but they lamented in a way that was informed by their hope. The world may be wrong now, but it will be right then. In fact, the world will always be wrong in part until Messiah returns. But that's not how we think. 
It's not how we act. It's not how we love. We double down so often on our hopes in the present age, or we think back nostalgically on better times, and we rage against the inevitable. Why? Because we've lost the plot. We stopped looking to the future. We should be an expectant people. Yes, we lament the moment and we work to bring about God's kingdom. We spread the gospel's message. We spread the gospel's effects. But our hopes are never in this moment. Our Messiah will come again. And though his kingdom is growing now, we expect its consummation then. So don't be surprised or discouraged with your present age. Don't be deceived into thinking that this is what we were hoping for and this is what we are meant for. Hannah didn't think that. David didn't think that. No, we're an expectant people. So lament the current state of the world while never losing your hope for the future. I mean, poor David. He's dying with a smile on his face as though his hopes last even beyond his death. So let me ask you, how's your hope? How's your expectation? The promise of the Messiah should make us expectant, as were Hannah and David. And what they expected came in the incarnation of the Son of God. So where does your hope lie? As we approach Thanksgiving and Advent, as we leave First and Second Samuel behind us, our eyes should be firmly set on the horizon. We should be an expectant people longing for Messiah's return because on that day, All things will be made right. Our king will return. Our sorrow will be no more. And the glory and justice of God will fill the earth. So let us hope for nothing less than our Messiah's return. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us promises that we know are true because Jesus came back from the dead. This is our hope. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come today to make all things right. 